Welcome back to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. Well, at least from the center right to the center left. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Damon Linker of The Week, Linda Chavez, Senior Fellow at the Niskanen Center, and Bill Galston of The Wall Street Journal. We cannot begin this week's podcast without the glorious announcement that the Washington Nationals are world champions this morning, this afternoon. They are the winners of the World Series, which um, was thrilling for all concerned in one of those rare moments when uh, everybody is happy about something that happened in this town. so And a statistical anomaly, which will not be repeated again in our lifetime. And, and it right. happened, I have to tell you, mm-hmm. on my youngest son, Rudy's birthday. All right. And he is Washington, D.C.'s number one fan, D.C. Barno. He goes by that handle Aww. on blogging. So, and he was at the game. He bought a ticket yesterday morning. Oh, my, and, and, flew. and he got in? He wow. got, he didn't have a ticket to the game itself until he landed and he, I don't, I don't want to ask him how much uh, yeah, he paid. Mom, I was going to say how much t- <laughs> He's old enough. It's out of his pocket. Yeah. It's not out of mine. But anyway, it was, a, it was a big, big victory in our family. Oh, that's fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. And I don't think there has been another World Series since the inception of the World Series where every single game was won by the away, the away team. team. Away team. That's yeah. right. It's, it is amazing. Yeah. Um, what, are the, what are the chances What are the of odds? Right? On the other hand, you have to admit that baseball is a sport that has so many statistics that no, that they, they count so many things that you could probably find a world record on something or other almost every series. Why do you think series. nerds like me love the game <laughs> right. so much? That's exactly right. That, that it's, it's a statistical... Yeah, the, the crossover from baseball fanatics to political analysts is astonishingly right. high. That's and so you know, one true. of the people I thought about last night me was too. Charles Kotheimer. Yeah, me too. Because he was a huge fan. I ran into him at Nats Park a couple of times, and I thought, too bad Charles yeah, didn't live didn't to see Didn't live to it. see this. He used to say, though, I remember he had a column um, uh, where he, he was sort of saying, you know, I almost lament that the Nationals are now getting good. He said, because it's going to be a little bit less fun. You know, when they weren't any good, it was just everybody mm-hmm. relaxed and just there to, for the for the experience. And, you know, now he said they're starting to get good. So you start feeling like you have more to worry about. Well, I'm old enough to remember another team just like that, the New York Mets, mm-hmm. right, who started off as the lovable stumble bombs. Okay. <laughs> Their first manager, Casey Stengel, once, once said of his team, can't anyone here play this game. Right. <laughs> right. And by 1969, they actually you know, staged a miracle of their own. Didn't right. they call it the Miracle Mets? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Miracle yeah. Mets. I remember that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, back to the uh, the, the political grind. Uh, the uh, march of impeachment goes on. Today, the House uh, voted formally to uh, inaugurate this impeachment as an official matter. Um, it passed on a pure party line vote with one former Republican, Justin Amash, uh, voting with the Democrats. Uh, we also had uh, a, um, a parade of more witnesses coming before the Intelligence Committee, um, including um, L- Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, uh, who is an official with the National Security Council. That is, he was is uh, and was hired by the Trump administration. He's not 
a, a career civil servant, although he is a career military man who received a Purple Heart for having had an IED blow, a, blow him apart or blow, blow apart the vehicle he was in um, when he was serving. Um, and um, it is a, is a mark of where the conservative commentariat, or at least chunks of it, are that uh, Laura Ingram and John Yu chose to impugn his patriotism on national television and say that because he had been born in Ukraine, that he may have been really working for the Ukrainians and not uh, concerned about America's national interest. All right. Well, um, let's let's get into this a little bit. Um, the uh, Polling suggests that um, impeachment is less popular, it, though it's though it's popular nationwide, majority, less popular in swing states like Wisconsin and Florida, where it's underwater. Um, should that worry the Democrats, Linda? Well, look, I, impeachment should not be decided by polls. Uh, however, um, part of the reason is I, I don't think people are really paying attention. People like us get up every morning. You know, go to our iPhones or whatever gadget we use. Start reading. What do you mean, get up? Mine's in the bed (laughs) with me. Right, (laughs) wakes you up. Right. Yeah, I check in the middle of the night actually sometimes. Um, But you know that that isn't the way the rest of the world operates. And the Republicans mystify me by wanting this thing to be out in the public. When it is on television, and if, for example, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman had been before the cameras as our former colleague Ollie North was in dress uniform, mm-hmm. it has a very different impact watching him testify there in his dress blues. And uh, and so I think that you're going to see some of that change. And I think the Republicans are going to rue the day that they wanted all of this out there in public because I don't think the Republicans have a good story to tell. And the story that is emerging is a very dark one, a very troubling one, and I think absolutely deserves uh, a, a full inquiry and impeachment. So, um, Bill, one of the people who this week agreed to testify in public is Bill Taylor, who is considered to have given perhaps the most damning testimony so far in the closed sessions. Um so uh, how do you think that will go? Will it, uh, will it affect things? Well, uh, I've been <clears throat> wallowing in the survey data, uh, including the survey data. You remember wallowing in Watergate? <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, <laughs> I have lived so long that I get to do it again. Uh, and, you know, I can report to you that it's not just a handful of swing states, it's all of them where impeachment at this point is very much underwater by a margin of more than 10 points. Unlike the rest, unlike the country as a whole where there's actually plurality support. So I think that is something that Democrats should take notice of. Uh, And especially when you combine that, and this is sidling up to your question now, Mona, with another rather disturbing finding from the surveys that I've been looking at, and that is more Americans think that what the president did is just business as usual, typical of what all politicians do, than who believe that it was aberrant behavior. And so the ultimate line of defense for Republicans may be 
yeah, he did it, but everybody else does more or less the same thing. So what? Well, that, I by think, the way, Trump is not giving them an opportunity um, to say – uh, that it didn't uh, that that it happened and it's just not impeachable, which would be the logical defense you would think the Republicans would be relying on now. He's forcing them to say there's nothing wrong with it. It was a beautiful call. It was a perfect call, and it is it is foreign policy. That's he's, what he's forcing them to say. He's trying to force them to say that. But they are resisting that pressure mm -hmm. for good and sufficient reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is, they don't believe it, and they don't think they can convince anyone else to believe it either. But I do think that at the end of the day, whatever the president says, this mounting cynicism among the American people, which the president has played upon, mm -hmm. to be you know, and I don't think it's unfair of me to say that, may end up saving him at least until November of 2020. Uh, we shall, we shall see. Uh, mm. But if you're asking me, uh, what kind of impression will Mr. Taylor make, which is what you did ask me, uh, if the descriptions of his performance behind closed doors, which we've heard, uh, turn out to be anything like correct, he will come across as a highly credible witness. So, Damon, if you um if you uh, wallow in the data, as Bill has, uh, one of the things that you see is that the uh, support for impeachment and removal fluctuates, um, at least in partly in response to what's in the news. Um, and uh, and so um, one, one question would be, uh, do you think that this cynicism that Bill referred to is something that can be uh, rebutted by testimony that is inspiring enough and patriotic enough on the part of some of these um, witnesses that we've heard about but not seen? Well, I think it depends on who you're talking about. Um, if you mean kind of die-hard, die Trump-voting um, dead-enders who really genuinely nope. love Donald Trump and, <laughs> and think what he's what he's doing, uh, the kind of politics he practices with its roots in uh, in that kind of cynicism that Bill talked about, then in, in that case, you're probably not going to move them at all. They'll always find an excuse. There will always be uh, a new Laura Ingram show uh, with another guest, uh, a Rush Limbaugh show, a Sean Hannity, who will uh, come up with some kind of a spin uh, to try to wave it away and impugn the character of that person, no matter how how much they appeared to be honorable in their testimony. But, uh, you know, I think that at least, you know, Bill is right at the state level. So when talk, when we're talking about swing states and the eventual election that's coming, that is significant. But in the, in the aggregate polling data, uh, you do see a real division between Democrats on the one side, diehard Trump supporting Republicans on the other, and then independents who have been so far at least uh, inclined to give a lot of credence to the impeachment inquiry as it's been going on so far. And those folks, I think, uh, are persuadable, especially by uh, an honorable uh, um, 
you know, a person both honorable, both by their resume and then by their demeanor in the testimony? Do they act with a kind of civic reverence? Do they uh, respond to battering by Republicans on various committees? Uh, uh, you know, in a way that shows that they respect the process, even if not the questions and how they're worded. And if that happens, I think uh, we're, we're just going to have to see exactly how far the needle can move among those independents. But you put together all the Democrats with most of the independents, and you have uh, a majority of the American people then, at least on the side of perhaps a conviction. But, you know, then we actually have to dig down into the Senate the various senators and when they're up for re-election and how vulnerable they are to, to uh, you know, right-wing uh, primaries and so forth. So it's going to get complicated before it gets simple. So, Bill, the, uh, let me just um, introduce, uh, you say what you want, but I wanted to just ask you really quick, in your deep dive into the data, um, did you find uh, differences by sex, that women are far more hostile to Trump and more supportive of impeachment than men. Well, that's baked into American politics right mm -hmm, now. Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. would be surprising if we didn't find that. But even Republican-leaning women, as I understand the data. Well, look at what happened. Not hardcore Republicans, not the no, Fox no, watchers. Yeah. But look at what happened with Republican-leaning women in the suburbs in 2018. Exactly. Right? So, th Well, can I say something about that real quick, though? Yeah, because yeah. it just drives me crazy that every time, well, so often when you read about the 2018 election, you will see people, careless journalists, saying things like, and of course, the 2018 election, which showed the strength of the left wing of the Democratic Party with Ocasio-Cortez and the, you know, the, uh, the quartet, what do they call themselves? The tribe? The quartet? No, that's not it. The, the squad. Uh, the squad, yes. Um, the, no, precisely the opposite of happened. Course. They had, right. So every, it was. Every non brain dead journalist knows where the and Democratic yet you, majority you came from. You see this constantly. You see this yeah, constantly. Right, okay, yeah. anyway, go, all right. Yeah. So you wanted to make another. I just wanted to make a, you know, a very small, simple point, but I think not trivial. Uh, namely, that <clears throat> since the beginning of October, public opinion has not moved in response to events. Mm -hmm. All of the change in the balance of public sentiment occurred in the week between the first revelations and the end of September. Since then, take a look at any competent survey average that you care to consult. It's been a flat line. So the revelations of the past five weeks have not moved the needle since that initial week. So this raises a question because in the beginning, when it first uh, was revealed that Trump had done what he did, you know, that he re he released the uh, rough transcript of the call, which he thought was exonerating and everybody else thought was uh, uh, inculpating. Uh, he, um, <laughs> as opposed to exculpating, <laughs> um, he... Uh, Grammar alert. <laughs> <laughs> what is the right word there? Anyway, I can't think of it, so I made one up. Incriminating. Thank you. I, the, the Shakespeare used to make up words, so yes, it was okay for him. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, um, so in the beginning, it there was a big shift right. in public opinion right. where people said, this is wrong. Right. This should not happen. Mm -hmm. We're upset. And then in the intervening weeks, after people started fighting about it in a partisan fashion, and after the Republicans began to say, no, it was fine, that diminished, right? So people's sense of right and wrong is not 
written in stone. It's capable of being manipulated, or at least it's capable of changing, right? Well, uh, I would offer a slightly different interpretation, and that is that there is a swing portion of the electorate, but regrettably it's smaller than we might suppose, that substantial shares of voters on both sides are baked into their sentiments and they will hear what they want to hear and interpret it the way they want to interpret it, mm -hmm. and that a substantial portion of swing voters move during that first week. Mm. According to the surveys I've reviewed recently, you now have in the swing states 8% of voters who favor the inquiry but at this point impose, oppose impeachment and removal. I think that's a pretty good measure of the amount of swing that's left in the system, absent mm -hmm. some new explosive testimony. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and what that tells me is that about half of the potential swing voters move during that first week. The rest, but Linda, you don't, the, sorry. The rest haven't. So, mm -hmm. but you don't, you don't need very many, right? I mean, we're, we're divided right down the middle. Trump won by 77,000 votes or whatever it was. Um, you don't need too many people to move to dramatically rock American politics. Well, that's true. But, you know, the, this whole discussion, I have to tell you, totally depresses me. Not because uh, Bill's numbers uh, are worrisome. It's because we're not having the discussion on the basis that the founders put this provision into the Constitution for. It isn't for the voters to decide. It is for the United States Senate to decide. And it is supposed to be decided on the basis of the evidence and the basis of the law and the Constitution. And the fact that this is, again, going to divide based on whether you hate Trump or love Trump is, is just wrong. Acts took place. They involve something extraordinarily critical, the very heart of, of um, our democracy, our foreign policy, and the you know, providing of aid that was a bipartisan effort. It was a law that was passed with Democrat and Republican support. The president signed that law. And then he, according to what we've heard, held up that aid, would not give it in order to benefit himself to promote a conspiracy theory about the Ukrainians involving themselves in the 2016 election and to try to undermine the candidacy of Joe Biden. This is just so depressing to think that this is going to be decided on the basis of popularity. I'm, you know, I, I just, I oh, despair. And by the way, thereby cheating in the 2020 election. Right. And thereby cheating in the 20, I, I just, I despair. I mean, that's, that's not the way our country was supposed to be run. Uh, Damon, um, I, I, in a column that I just wrote, which will be out tomorrow, I uh, said, let's play a parlor game and think of everyone you know who supported the impeachment of Bill Clinton and supports the impeachment of Donald Trump or vice versa. Um, it's uh, arguably an incredibly small universe. I looked at the people who are currently sitting in Congress. Um, uh, none of them are consistent. Uh, none of them is consistent since we've got grammar police here. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and, and of course, one of the most famous uh, impeachment managers in 1999 was Lindsey Graham, 
who was eloquent about the importance of cleansing the Oval Office uh, in, in that impeachment case and now has introduced a resolution condemning this one. Um, so uh, are, there, are there any uh, people who are basing their judgment on impeachment based on the facts, Damon, as far as you can tell? Mitt Romney. Um, okay, okay. Yeah, <laughs> he, appears, Mitt Romney. he appears to be. Um, I mean, this is, I mean, what Linda said, I at once uh, feel that way myself. I, too, am often depressed about where we are at the same time that I, I feel, I mean, here's, I guess, my double depression that, uh, you know, that that uh, horse has left the barn long ago. Um, you know, we talk about the Senate and its deliberate role in this process uh, perhaps it would uh, it, it would be more deliberative if uh, the Senate were not popularly elected as the Constitution mm -hmm. says it sh it should be um, that's one of many many reforms over the last century or so that have made our politics more small D democratic mm -hmm. and the consequence I think we're now seeing is that everything is about, public opinion. You take a poll, you talk to your constituents, and whatever they want, you are supposed to do. This This kind of the distance that the, the founders talked about in the Federalist Papers about the institutions of representative government supposed to be creating a kind of distance between public opinion and what the government does. So you elect representatives, but then they actually deliberate and try to uh, add, add a kind of leaven to uh, mm -hmm. the opinion and add reason to it uh, by actually talking it through and arguing about it with your fellow representatives and then doing what's best in light of the common good. That was always, you know, a very high-minded and probably unrealistically noble take on what any representative democracy would do in reality. But we are very, very far from it now, and I think quite a bit further from it than we used to be. Um, now, there have been ups and downs over the years. Early in the Republic, there were some pretty nasty moments as well, including mm -hmm. uh, duels and fistfights on the floor of the House, which haven't happened yet. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, after that protest last Wednesday, uh, sometimes I wonder how far we really are from that. So, yeah, I, I share the concern, and frankly, other than Mitt Romney and a, and a handful of others who, who have retired from the mm. Congress uh, since Trump became president, I can't think of a large number of, of people who appear to be uh, kind of wanting, you know, thinking that their constituents uh, prefer one course of action, and yet they're going to do something else for the sake of some higher principle. It just doesn't happen much anymore. Right. Although you do see um, this um, stream of articles where people interview Republicans, you know, off the record and unnamed Republican senators, and um, you get the sense that they are feeling more and more trapped. They really do face uh, an awful alternative. They either break with Trump and thereby lose the diehard Trumpists in the Republican Party, um, or they stick with Trump and they lose the independents uh, and, and, well, they would lose Democrats anyway, but they lose the, the leaners. 
leaning Rs. So um, some of them may find themselves in, an, in, a, in a tough spot. And since there's no good political alternative for them, they may be forced to do what they think is right. That could happen. Yeah, and it is complicated um, because the they, they don't personally want to lose their jobs, which they like, and but then that's intertwined with somewhat higher concerns about ideology and policy that they most of them do care about to some extent. And so they're, they're concerned if we do this, if we were to actually break with the president and vote to remove him from office, that would that would potentially break the Republican Party and ensure uh, democratic victories uh, for the foreseeable future. And they look across the aisle and they see Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and they think, yeah, Trump, this is terrible. I hate this. But am I willing to do that and ensure that these other set of ideas and policies actually uh, come to power with more uh, force than we've seen in a really long time, if ever. And, you know, I there's part of me, I don't often elicit <laughs> the sympathy across the aisle about Trump support among Republicans, but I, I get it at that level. Um, two two things I want to just um, mention to you. One is I don't agree when you say that the uh, that the founding uh, documents that the Constitution was high minded. I think actually it was incredibly realistic about human nature, and uh, tried very hard to keep in mind that people are selfish and avaricious and power hungry, and that you know you needed to put in safeguards to keep those things uh, from uh, you know checking one another. And and so I actually don't think it was high mind. I mean that as the greatest compliment, by the way. Um, oh, yeah, and I and I don't disagree uh, with you. It's uh, just another aspect of it. But yes, I'm not. I, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Now, what I, I have a question for both Damon and Bill, um, and that is, is there, so one of the things that we have seen in the era of Trump is that there have been some people, admittedly, not that many, but there have been some people on the right who's been rethinking some of the, uh, some of the things they believed and they have been, uh, more open to, um, listening to the other side, I'm wondering, is there any sense among Democrats that, for example, uh, the the advent of Trump is evidence of um, that we have given way too much power to the executive, uh, something that has been cheered by liberals and progressives for decades now? Uh, are you coming to me first? Sure, um, go, you can go first. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, again, I'm going to sound a little on the cynical side, I guess, uh, and continue with that theme a little bit. But uh, in my in my view, it seems that um, these things tend to kind of flip back and forth depending on who is in charge. I mean, for a, a long time, conservatives were, were very upset and railing about uh, the way that uh, you had a kind of uh, judicial tyranny on the march uh, with the Supreme Court uh, pushing for a certain kind of uh, agenda despite public opinion, which supposedly was more conservative. That begins with Roe v. Wade and goes on through a series of other mostly social conservative rulings. But among some libertarians, it goes all the way back to the New Deal. The thought of the kind of uh, the conservative, the um, Supreme Court and the, the court in general moving 
kind of uh, in an undemocratic way. Now that's kind of flipped because uh, conservatives seem to have a lock on the court for quite a while now. And there's a, a big fear that they could actually end up with something like a six to three or even seven to two majority if certain deaths or retirements happen uh, in the near future. And so now on the left, you're hearing a lot of people concerned about that. And similarly with executive power, that seems to be uh, a, a real theme uh, whenever the party isn't holding the presidency. But then, uh, you know, uh, you, it's one thing to be Barack Obama and to talk about that on the trail in 2008, but then you become president and you start getting the briefings and the intelligence reports and you start to realize the, the weight of the office and its burdens. And suddenly you're pretty happy that you have a lot of leeway and prudential uh, prudential freedom to act in the name of national security, for example. So I, I'm not sure how much there is going to be a sustainable bipartisan consensus for that kind of reform, but we'll see. You know, it really true. worries me when I see Democrats like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and others saying, you know, I will, you know, give Congress 100 days to pass, for example, gun control. And if they don't pass something that I approve of, well, then I'll do it by executive order. And, you know, that, that was uh, Harris. Warren claims she's going to outlaw fracking and do a whole series of other things. This is not healthy and it is not a good response to the challenge of Trump. Well. I couldn't agree with you more, Mona. And, you know, I have a somewhat different view of some of the subterranean components of thinking among, among Democrats. I do think that there is a growing awareness that over recent decades, Congress has not only not defended its prerogatives in good Manasotian fashion, but really has, you know, thoughtlessly conspired with itself to hand over congressional powers to the executive branch. Mm -hmm. Indeed, this is not healthy. Now, in, you know, in, in the not very deep background of this is the polarization and the legislative gridlock that it has produced in, you know, in times, which now are most times, where there is divided as opposed to unified government. And so presidents have been forced to choose between executive orders and getting nothing done. And well, they weren't forced. I mean, Obama well, did not have to do no, DACA. no, no. But but uh, but I was about to say, presidents being presidents, the idea of sitting there for six years twiddling your thumbs while Congress does nothing is not an attractive prospect. And but. Let's let's go back to the previous really significant impeachment event, which was not 1998, but 1974. Uh, that gave rise to a serious effort on the part of Congress to reclaim its powers. For example, with the 1974 Congressional Budget and Anti-Impoundment yes. Act, which was hugely significant in rebalancing of the fiscal power as between Congress and the executive branch, a lot of people... And the are, War Powers Act. A actually. lot of people, not that that was such a great success in practice, Agreed, but, but, it, but it bespoke, it seems to me, the same, the same set of concerns. I, I would bet that over the next decade or so, if and when passions cool, 
there will be an effort to rebalance powers as between Congress and the executive. Because when Congress is a dysfunctional branch, then power flows to both the judiciary and right. the executive that neither should have and neither was designed to exercise correctly. And this is dangerous. But don't you think that's only going to happen when you have a different party in control of the White House and the same party in control of both houses of Congress, uh, not the same as the president's, but a different party. In other words, the Democrats control, as they did for parts of the Reagan administration and, and other Republican administrations where you had a House and a Senate controlled by the Democrats and you had the president in the White House, look, a Republican. Look, divided government can either be the best case or the worst case, depending on how divided government acts. If it leads to serious compromise in the name of moving the country forward in a way the majority of the people can accept, that's great. If it leads as it has led for so many of the years of Recently. the 20, 21st century to stagnation and frustration and mounting mistrust and cynicism on the part of the American people who see people going to Washington and getting nothing done despite what they say – and having government shut down after government shut down. That does not help. But I'm but I'm thinking of it more just in terms of, of the you know, prerogatives of power. If if your guy's in the White House and you're the same party and you're in control in the in the Congress, you don't seem to feel the same need to try to wrest back some control because presumably you're gonna have some of the same goals and everything's gonna, you know, work smoothly. So I, I, I just think divided government is gonna give more of a chance to, for Congress to be able to reassert itself uh, than it would if if the party in in the White House was also the majority. Don't of Congress. you get the feeling though that part of this is the media environment? I mean, a lot of these members seem. I remember meeting. Um, oh gosh, uh, a young, handsome congressman from Utah whose name I forget now. He has curly hair, and um, he was a, he was a young and upcoming guy. Um, and uh, and I thought, you know, oh, you know, he has a big future, maybe. Well, what did he do? He resigned his seat, and now he's a Fox News commentator. That's all he wanted. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them don't have the formal title of commentator on the chat shows, but they're informally, <laughs> that's all they do. And apparently, that helps them be seen at home, mm -hmm. and therefore more easily reelected. And you know, the other stuff—that's governing. That's not as much fun, and that's not. That's actually hard work, and you have to read briefing papers and attend hearings. And who wants to do that? Yeah, it, it, you're absolutely <laughs> right. I, 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 speaking of names that you don't remember, I watched uh, this week as as a Republican was interviewed who was had a right to be in the hearings and hearing the testimony, oh, yeah. and but he wasn't there. But he'd made up his mind that this was all baloney anyway. And he hadn't attended any of the hearings, and he's talking about the process and how unfair this is. But he has a right to be in the room asking questions, and he's not. And he wasn't. No, I haven't had time. I have a lot of other important things yes, to do. Yes, I saw that. Oh, it's really unbelievable. All right, one more thing um, <laughs> about this before we talk a little bit about the economy and other matters. Um, this one, so the, one of the little bubbles that's been bur that's been bubbling up this week that I think deserves to be burst is this idea that John Bolton is going to step forward and you know be the the kill shot here that you know he will come forward and tell all the true backstories about what went on in the White House with with uh, Trump. Um, I. I, you know, I, I know John Bolton a little bit. I don't think he would lie. I think he whatever he does, he will tell the truth. 
But he has strong incentives not to be that person, uh, because what does that say about him? That he went to work for somebody who was unstable and reckless and, uh, and a very, very uh, irresponsible decision maker. I mean, he cannot, I think, acknowledge that um, and still. Uh, yeah, but you forget that he got fired and uh, revenge is, is also something that's a Maybe. very natural human emotion. Maybe. I don't know. I, I, I actually think I don't think that he's going to be. Uh, a witness like Lieutenant Colonel Vinman or or Mr. Taylor or, you know, Fiona, Hill, Hill. Fiona Hill or some of the others. I don't think he's going to, you know, have his heart in it that much. But he isn't going to lie. And I did say I was surprised when he took the job. And I, and I said, you know, I don't know John that well, but I know him well enough to know he does not suffer fools. And I just couldn't imagine him in a briefing. With the, th- the president. The other thing to, to keep in mind with Bolton, who I am, I am no fan of John Bolton, but he, he the, I can say this about him. He believes things. Mm-hmm. The thing that the mark of a Trumpist, if there is a mm-hmm. kind of distinguishing characteristic of someone who is either Trump or his, his rabid supporters in the administration and out, is that they don't really believe in anything beyond their own aggrandizement of power. Uh, and, and winning. So, you know, they're, they're able to twist themselves into all kinds of knots over policy and, and what they'll say anything, as we saw once again in the fake protest of a week ago. But John Bolton actually cares about the world and what America mm-hmm. does and how. And then I think at the deeper kind of conservative level of, kind of how government is supposed to function and public propriety and and uh, the way you're supposed to conduct yourself as as a country in the world. He, you know, he doesn't love diplomacy um, as such, but I'm sure he doesn't approve of what Trump pulled with that phone call with Zelensky. So, um, I, yeah, I agree with you. He's not going to come in and, and kind of give this kind of fulsome denunciation of Trump, I would think. But on the other hand, I don't think what he learned working in the White House is is going to make him feel he needs to have any loyalty to the president or the lackeys he had to deal with when he worked there. So I, I think that could go badly for uh, for Trump having him testify. The thing I don't really uh, I really can't imagine seeing is that John Bolton will now become like a hero to Democrats. <laughs> We've seen it happen with George W. Bush, and next it's going to be John Bolton. That'll be something to see. Uh, no. yeah, well, yeah. A sign of the times. For the record, yeah. I don't entirely agree with the proposition that the Trumpistas don't believe in anything. I think a lot of them do. I think. I think actually the president does, and if this were a different kind of discussion, I would spend some time laying out what I think the president <laughs> has consistently believed for a very long thing. I don't long agree with time, him yeah. on any a very long time. I don't agree with him on any of it, but I but I think there's a little little bit more to him. I will I will just say with regard to Mr. Bolton, I am I am struck by uh, his non-resistance to the call to you know to testify. Right. You know, there are various things that he could have done at least to slow the process. But most recently, I think just today, he said that if subpoenaed, he would appear. Yeah. Well, right. that's, you know, we know he's going to be subpoenaed. So that's that's the end of the matter. I, I should also say 
that if he tells the truth, he can be a very damaging witness. Uh, I would love to ask him, well, uh, Mr. Bolton, you were reported to have been leery of the quote-unquote drug deal that, <laughs> that Mulvaney and Sunland were, were cooking up. Uh, would you like to explain to the committee exactly what, what drugs were, were involved? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but he, he could just say, I'm going to let my comments stand or he I don't, could, he, you know. He, he could. He, he, look, uh, I'm, I just brought that up yeah. because but it's such a great it's quote. A, it's a great quote. <laughs> but and, and, you know, there is right now this question of Sunland and, and what he has testified to. And he's now... I think he must be very nervous now because well, he, he, he be. took an oath and he swore to tell the truth and several people have contradicted him and he fudged it a little bit. He didn't recall certain things. Well, that didn't work for our friend Elliot Abrams very well, as I recall. Oh. He he ended up uh, in a great deal of trouble for that and had, you know, so I this not recalling is not going to help him. So I think one of the things Bolton can do is is he can confirm and as a political appointee as the top you know political appointee in that uh in this whole uh scenario and he can confirm whether or not they did warn him and whether he was upset by what was taking place there are a couple of other things going against Sundlin. yeah one is that the other people who testified about the exact same events have contemporaneous notes. Yes, yeah, that's and a also there are there text are those messages, text <laughs> messages that Call are time me. stamped. Call me. Okay, <laughs> so there's that. That's a problem. Also, he was uh, Trump's uh, ambassador to the European Union. Right. And what Ukraine was he doing? Isn't right, in not the European, in the European Union. Union. So, um, all right. Let, let's talk a little bit um, about. Although there's a big subject, and we don't have a huge amount of time left, but. Um, there were uh, some. Uh, there was some news on the economy. It grew at 1.9 percent in the third quarter, and the projections are for it to be slowing down for the rest of the year. CBO says, um, and and beyond. Um, the Wall Street Journal editorial boards happy to say that this is because of uh, Trump's trade policies, um, and um, we also, you know, at this time of incredibly low unemployment, um, have reach trillion-dollar deficits per year, um, and uh, you have people like Rush Limbaugh saying, quote, nobody is a fiscal conservative anymore. All this talk about concern for the deficit and the budget has been bogus for as long as it's been around. Now he so, tells us. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about people who don't believe anything. Wow. So I think, first of all, I don't, I don't think that's true. I think actually that Paul Ryan was sincere yes, in I his worries too. about the budget deficit. I think he just found himself unable to cope with the political situation that he found with the rise of Trump and populism. But, um, uh, but what do we think, um, Bill, you in particular, because you track election polling so closely. I mean, is there a number below which uh, Trump finds it hard to get reelected if the economy slumps? Well, I actually, I actually did a mini study of this. Okay. And what I, what I found, uh, not entirely to my surprise, is that if there is a notable deceleration of the rate of economic growth between the third and fourth year of a president's term, that is not good news for an incumbent president. You know, mm -hmm. if people have if people have the sense that things are slowing down, they're not getting better mm -hmm. at the rate that they were. Uh, they begin to ask 
questions. And so it's not an absolute number so much as it is a perceptible decline in the rate of economic growth. Now, now a you know, an outright recession would be devastating to any any president's reelection prospects and especially this one since he doesn't have a lot else going for him in the court of public opinion right now. Uh, but if economic growth is meaningfully below 2%, not only in the third and fourth quarters of this year, but the first two or three quarters of next year, I think that would put the Trump presidency in considerable jeopardy. You know, I don't know why it is that people don't respond with eye-rolling, that is, people who support Trump. I mean, I know a lot of people who support Trump, and they will always cite the economy as a uh, one of the reasons. And, you know, okay, fair enough. Presidents always get credit or blame mm-hmm. for whatever the economy is. That's a given. Um, on the other hand, whenever anything goes against him, he immediately finds someone to blame. It's right. the, the Federal Reserve, who today he once again denounced and said, we're worse than China. Now, speaking of China, Damon, <laughs> I'll bring you in. <laughs> Um, Nice pivot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So one of the things that Trump promised uh, was a trade war with China, and he's got one. Um, But now he says he's looking for a deal, and he has a year until his potential reelection. Isn't he in the worst possible negotiating position to get a deal with China that would be good? Well, of course, because China has every incentive to just wait it out and hope that he'll that they will get a better deal if a Democrat ends up being president in a year. Um, I mean, that's in in some ways that's always a dynamic when you're dealing with electoral cycles, uh, uh, as opposed to say a business negotiation where there's no set uh, end of a term for the person you're negotiating with. Uh, but of course, Trump has brought all of this on himself. Now, I don't want to make it seem, I do think that, speaking of one thing that Trump apparently does believe, uh, as, uh, Bill was indicating, Trump does believe certain things. Yes, he's, he's, he's definitely has protectionist instincts on trade and has for a very long time. I think on China, he has had a point and one that will, I think, enduringly beyond the Trump administration make a difference, especially among, uh, well, kind of both parties have an incentive to, uh, to kind of take a harder line with China than we tended to be doing, uh, in the recent past. So that will be, I think, a, a legacy of the Trump administration. But as for this specific Issue, I have to confess a kind of ignorance. I can't even say clearly what Trump might have in his head as a good deal in the, like, what is it that he wants precisely from China that would enable him to claim that he got a good deal? Maybe he has something like that. Maybe Lighthizer, the main trade representative who's, who's spearheading the, the negotiations. Maybe he, I think that's more likely he has some, uh, point, but is there really any American voter on the street who you could say, what does Trump want and how will we know if he got a good deal in relation to that? 
and I, mm. I don't think anybody knows. So he'll yeah. he'll he'll come up with something, I'm sure, uh, and say, "Oh yeah, we got this deal, and this is this is fantastic." Just like he renegotiated NAFTA, made some peripheral changes to it, and wants to rebrand it as the Trump trade deal with Mexico and Canada. Um, it, for him, it always comes down to the branding exercise. So if he can get anything and then call it the great Trump deal with China, he'll do so. Whether it's real or not, I, I will leave to people who understand more about uh, the intricacies of trade than, than I do. So I, I, I want to make two quick points about uh, Trump and China. One is, um, you know, well, three points. First, <clears throat> He does at least sometimes pay lip service to the idea that he's going to get China or try to get China to respect our intellectual property. And that's a real thing. And it is a true sore point between our two nations. And if he could do that, that would be great. Um, but uh, two other things. One is uh, his approach to China has been utterly and completely devoid of any interest in human rights. So he has made it very clear that he will never speak out for people who are oppressed, for, for the Uyghurs, for any group within China that is, uh, that, that is oppressed, including uh, those in Hong Kong. Uh, quite the contrary. Um, in, in his past, he, he has actually applauded uh, the, the massacre at Tiananmen Square and uh, so forth. But, what, but one other thing I want to say is that because of his domestic fiscal policies, because he passed this $2 trillion tax cut and increased spending by $2 trillion, he has deepened the terrible hole that we were already in and weakened us vis-a-vis -vis China because we borrow so damn much from Chinese borrowers that he is, by in effect, because of those policies, um, limiting our scope of of uh, options vis-a-vis yeah. -vis China. They, they hold the note on, yeah. on our debt. Yeah, not so. all of it, but a yeah, significant... But of it. Yes, yes, a significant part. Uh, okay, so, yes, will, Bill. You know, this is, not, this is not the time for a long disquisition on economics, and I am not now, nor have I ever been an economist. But most mainstream economists will tell you that the budget deficit is one of the principal drivers of the trade deficit. So it is, it is a, an economic contra contradiction to say that you're simultaneously going to reduce the trade deficit and increase the budget deficit. Hmm. Uh, and you know, if we had more time, I could go into the mechanisms that most economists posit. So right. that's, that's, pro that's problem number one. Uh, as to what he wants and what would be credible, I think most people now believe that the Trump administration has divided its trade negotiations with China into two phases. In phase one, the low-hanging fruit will be plucked. The Chinese will agree to buy more soybeans and other agricultural products, relieving the pressure on a sector to to whom Mr. Trump is much beholden politically. And to whom he has been shoveling taxpayer dollars. Right. Uh, <laughs> I read an article today to the effect that of, you know, of profits in the agricultural sector last year, 40% came from government payments of one sort or another to farmers. So mm -hmm. rugged individualism has <laughs> taken it on the chin in, yeah. this in this administration. The larger questions of intellectual property, forced technology, 
transfer mm -hmm. and China's industrial policy, mm -hmm. which has the explicit aim of displacing every other economy from the commanding heights of high tech by the year 2025, those will be untouched in phase one. And I would be very surprised if they were able to strike a deal on those issues anytime in 2020. Uh, because as Mr. Trump is discovering, uh, trade wars are not so easy to win after all. If I were a Democratic admeister, mm -hmm. this one would be a very big fish in a very small barrel. All you need to do is you'll put the video and audio of that statement from the president up against where we now stand with China. Well, that would be true if, if facts mattered. But, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know if any of you saw the ad that uh, the Trump people ran during yeah. the World Series, yeah, right? Yeah, I saw it. I saw it. Did you know that we have reduced illegal immigration by half? No, 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 no. That's not what's happened. Illegal immigration has exploded under Trump. It was down, you know, to an historic 50-year low when he took office, and it has gone in the last year up through the roof back to where we haven't seen it in decades and it doesn't seem to matter. Nobody seems to care. He, you know, he will say what he will say, regardless of what the facts are. So regardless of what deal he would or would not cut, he'll, he's going to tout it. And if he doesn't get a deal, he's going to claim that that's good, too. So, I mean, it just when you are so untethered from reality that you just can go out there and claim whatever helps you and get away with it, that's what you do. He'll get away with it with his core with base. With his core. But not yeah. necessarily with others. By the way, speaking of his core base, I can't let this go unremarked. Uh, one of the great lines this week uh, came from Stephanie Grisham, who is oh, the yes. president's yeah. press secretary. <laughs> when, when General Kelly said that he regretted resigning and that, you know, if, if you hire a yes man, you know, you're going to get impeached. She said... Kelly was unequipped, unequipped to handle the genius of our great president, right. which is really, as I heard somebody say, that's North Korea style. It is, language, absolutely. And that's exactly what it is. Absolutely. This is the, you know, this is the great leader. Ah, it's just yeah, the, the Wizard of Oz. Oh, more the Wizard oh. of Oz. <laughs> the great and wonderful Oz. <laughs> Moving oh, right Oh, gosh. All right. So, um, um Oh, can we spend two minutes on Tulsi Gabbard? There was a little flare-up this week between uh, Hillary. Was I think it was in the past week? Hillary Clinton said something in an interview about Tulsi Gabbard being groomed um, by the Russians as a third-party candidate. What do you guys say, you people on that side? What do you say? Well, I, I will quickly. The only thing I have to add on this is that I, I do not know why anyone would assume that a Gabbard third party run would hurt the Democrats more than Trump. Um, I, I don't mm -hmm. think there are a lot of Democrats sitting around who will resonate to Gabbard's uh, positions on things. Uh, so, I, in fact, I do think there are probably some Trump voters who aren't entirely happy with Trump's uh, enactment of what they hoped would be a non-interventionist foreign policy who might actually find uh, Gabbard kind of uh, appealing. Not a lot, but, uh, you know, in a close election, it doesn't have to be a lot. But I, I would say that it's going to be like, you know, he, you, you can't assume this is going to be like Jill Stein uh, taking mm -hmm. away a percentage point or two from Hillary Clinton. I think it could be it could be a mix of both. Or Ralph I, I'm not. I'm not sure of that. No. Okay. No, she is. 
she is doing better in the Democratic Party polling than I believed possible. If somebody had told me six months ago that Tulsi Gabbard would be out polling, significantly out polling Cory Booker, Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have believed it. Mm-hmm. But that's what's happening. And uh, Still, she's only at about 4%. I mean, it's not all huge. All right, but, but that puts her in the upper half of the Democratic <laughs> field. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. You know, and what, what does that mean exactly? I mean, mm-hmm. it, means, it means that she is saying something that nobody else is saying with equal force and clarity, and she's getting an audience for it. I would not be at all surprised to see her be not only in the November debate, but the December debate. Uh, and there are little Tulsi uprisings throughout Iowa now that I've been reading mm-hmm. about. And Iowa is the most dovish state in the country and has been for a very long time. That's so, you know, I am, I am not prepared to say that she's a nullity. Uh, and I hope, I hope very much that she doesn't feel so aggrieved by the process, and she has very little right to feel aggrieved by the process, that, that she went out on her own in, in, in the fall. Well, she you, has, I, I'm going to answer your question, because neither of the gentlemen answered your question. <laughs> I just want to point out. Your question had to do with, with Hillary Clinton, and all I can say is the less we see or hear from Hillary Clinton, the better. Mm-hmm. I mean, she. I, I think it was really uh, wrong of her to do what she did. Even if she had reason, you know, substantial reason to believe it was true, it it was just a dumb thing to say, and it muddies the water. And, you know, throwing accusations that the Russians, you know, have somehow co-opted this woman, I think is just not helpful to anybody. If you were really conspiracy-minded, you would say that Hillary was actually trying to help Gabbard because she did (laughs) elevate her profile. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, some people online were joking that actually Hillary Clinton must be the Russian asset because she's elevating Gabbard. You know, in yeah. you know, in fairness, in in fairness to Hillary, you know, Tulsi Gabbard is the only unequivocally pro Assad candidate oh, yes, of absolutely. either political oh, party, that's true. And, that's right. and many of her views are quite sinister. But why didn't they she are. just say that? Why didn't she just say that? Just don't you know? Yeah. I mean, again, she I could, just think she could have just said that if she were smart, but. Well, That's she's big, smart. But. Yeah, well, not wise. Um, well, I don't know. I think the uh, the great lesson to take away from Tulsi Gabbard's rise in the polls is that uh, if you take your sartorial advice from Tom Wolf, you can go far. Um, and uh, all right, let or us your now. political punditry from Andy Warhol. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh! All right. Um, so we now come to the section where we discuss something that someone said or did that uh, is not usually in uh, on your side of the fence that you want to praise. So, Linda, you want to go first? Okay, I will go first. And this one is uh, the column by uh, Gail Collins in the New York Times, the worst Trump cabinet member. You picked a real winner. And the winner is... Attorney General Bill Barr. Bill and Barr. I and I say this with some sadness because I was one of those people who thought he would bring some sanity to this administration. And I look now back in fondness at Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Can I just, I, I will tell you, that was one of the moments that was, so, well, there have been so many embittering moments that have happened in the last number of years for people like us. But I watched a lot of the bar uh, mm-hmm. confirmation hearing, 
and he was so professional and he had he 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 radiated a sense of integrity and i thought here is someone right. who's you know he was a bush attorney general he's he's been around, he's he is going to bring maturity and experience and dignity and integrity to the attorney general's office and it's going to be great and i said to my friend jay nordlinger at the time i said of course I suppose it's always possible that having delivered these wonderful remarks, he then called Trump on the phone and said, boy, we really pulled one over on them, didn't we? And what do you know? That was the real (laughs) story. All right. What about you, Bill? I never thought the day would come when I would utter these words. Hooray for Liz Cheney. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, but her immediate strong, unequivocal defense of Lieutenant Colonel Vindman against the sliming oh. that was occurring. I mean, I've I've never seen anything like that slime attack in my life. And and she showed me that there's a difference between being a conservative elected official and being a conservative pundit. And we need a lot more conservative elected officials who see that as a bright line. Linda was pointing out a few minutes ago that when that line blurs, you come out with terrible aberrations and people getting elected to Congress to to audition for Fox News, which is not exactly in line with the sainted founder's intentions. (laughs) Exactly. What about you, Damon? Well, I'm afraid I'm going to cheat a bit this week and do, uh, instead of praising someone on the other side, I would like to criticize someone on my own side, if that's permitted. Um, Fine. Yeah. uh, Richard Stengel, who is the former editor of Time Magazine and uh, usually a a very respectable and intelligent guy. Um, So he's on my same side because he's both in the center and because he's a a big journalist. Um, He has an op in the Washington Post this week titled Why America Needs a Hate Speech Law that uh, I think is one of the worst ideas that I've seen in a long time. Um, mm-hmm. Rendered even worse by the fact that he admits and concedes in the column that we don't know how to define hate speech and yet says we need it anyway. Uh, and mm-hmm. he says this in 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 kind of criticism of Facebook and with a lot of the uh, a lot of the heat they've been drawing because of uh, the way that disinformation and lies and so forth got spread virally online, and that is all a major problem. I totally agree with that. But the idea that empowering the government to try to police uh, hate speech. Uh, would solve anything rather than make our situation, which is so polarized already, even worse, is is really a, a very bad idea and disappointing to to see it out there. So, the Ministry of Truth. Yes, exactly. All right, um, my choice this week is Barack Obama, who uh, gave a talk and called out call out culture and uh, said. This idea of purity and you've never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff, you should get over that quickly, he told a bunch of students. And he then went on, say more, and say the world is messy, there are ambiguities, people who do really good stuff have flaws, people who are fighting may love their kids and, you know, share certain things with you. So 
It's Good amazing what reading Niebuhr can do for the soul. <laughs> I actually, in my book, which I will now shamelessly plug, Sex Matters, um, I did quote Obama with approval because on more than one occasion during his presidency, he gave speeches talking about the importance of having two parents yes, and, and what uh, a, a critical thing it is for children. And, and how God he, knows he should know. And he should know from his own experience. And he has said that he feels the most important thing he has done is provide a rock solid foundation for his daughters. And I applaud him for that. And I applaud you guys for coming in. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Next time. Next time.